to the Damascus Road podcast. On the road to Damascus, Paul had a radical encounter with Jesus and his life was changed forever. That is what we hope and pray for here. Now, on to this week's episode. And I hope you all had a great Thanksgiving and some great food to feast on. Heck, maybe you even got adventurous enough and made a turducken, rat pig, cow, cow, hornish game hen. But regardless of what you ate, I hope your uh, holiday was filled with plenty of family, food, and football. I know mine was. If I could get paid to sit on my couch with my family eating pumpkin pie and watching football, you know that's a job I would sign up for right now. And now that we've made our way through Thanksgiving, we are really and finally into the home stretch of 2020. Before we can say goodbye to the insanity that has been this year and will just become the insanity of 2021, we have two more major holidays to get through. We have Christmas, of course, and we have my birthday. Yes, now I'm not trying to say that my birthday is anywhere as near important as Christmas, but it is a big one this year. I won't tell you exactly how old I'm turning in just four days, but suffice it to say, it involves a four and a zero. Yeah, I'm turning 40. Yeah, uh, there goes any mystery to that at all. With my birthday and Christmas on the horizon, the topic of gifts inevitably comes up. And while gifts are by no means everything, There are many people, like me, who have a December birthday that feel they get the short end of the stick when it comes to people giving gifts because people like to combine both their birthday and Christmas gift into one present. Fun fact, my original due date was actually Christmas Day, but I was born three weeks early. And three weeks is just early enough and just far enough away from Christmas that I narrowly escaped that whole combined holiday gift thing. But I do have to put together a combined birthday slash Christmas gift list or wish list for my family this time of year. I don't know if your family does this or not, but mine are really big into Christmas and birthday gifts. We've been doing it for years, and honestly, if I think about it, we've been doing it for decades. Lists are a great way not only for you to let your family know of some of the things that you want or that you need, but they're also a great way to ensure that you actually get something that you want or that you need. And while that's great, it does take away a bit of the mystery and surprise of gifts sometimes. Everyone in my family has this line that they like to include at the end of their emails that we send back and forth when we share our wish lists, and it goes something like this, or anything that makes you think of me. And that's basically meaning, I trust that you know me well, and that I know that I will like whatever you decide to get me. It's a kind gesture, but it also really does put to test how well someone knows you. Because going rogue off that wish list, that can really only go a couple different ways. Several years ago, I received a combo birthday Christmas gift from someone that I admittedly don't hear from or talk to all that much. I really did appreciate being thought of, you know, arriving home and seeing a box on my porch of something that I wasn't expecting to get was exciting. But then I opened the box and inside the package was this shirt. Now... Contrary to popular belief, I am not Guy Fieri, and I have never resided in or even driven through Flavortown. Now, don't get me wrong. If this is your style, that's cool. Own it. Be you. That's awesome. 
But if you've ever seen me up here speaking, if you notice what I'm wearing here today, if you've seen me at church or leading worship or at the food bank or literally any other day ever of my life, you will know this is just not my personal style. It was also a 2XL shirt, which is really big, and I wear a medium, and you know, it was just a giant swing, miss, and strikeout. Sure, yes, it's the thought that counts, but it can still be really disappointing when someone gives you a gift and they prove that they either A, didn't put my, that much thought into it, or B, they just prove that they don't know you all that well. Now, on the flip side, gifts that someone really puts a lot of thought and energy into and not just picked off a predetermined list, those always mean so much more. For my first birthday that I celebrated when Eric and I got married, my lovely wife bought me a record player. I remember being completely surprised and shocked when I opened it. I wasn't expecting it at all. But even though we had only been married for five months, she proved how well she knew me how well she paid attention when she talked, how well she knew me inside and out, and she got me something that she knew aligned so well with my passion for music. That gift meant so much more because of all the meaning wrapped into it. It was so personal. Now, 15 years later, and almost a thousand albums on my shelves later, she might be regretting getting me that gift, but I don't know, you'd have to ask her about that. So as we are full speed towards Christmas, we will inevitably spend a lot of time thinking and a lot of energy thinking about gifts that we're going to give our family and friends and our loved ones. Gifts are entwined with the way we celebrate Christmas. But while our culture may skew the narrative of Christmas away from Jesus into uh, the thought of consumerism, it is important to remember that giving gifts is an integral part of the Christmas story in the Bible. Christians and non-Christians alike are very familiar with the gifts that were presented to the infant Jesus. We sing them and sing about them in Christmas songs, something like We Three Kings, and we read about it in the scripture all the time. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. They opened up their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We know this because we've read it in the Bible. We know this because we've sing it in Christmas songs. But do we actually take the time to realize that there is great meaning, thoughtfulness, and symbolism in the gold, frankincense, and myrrh in these three gifts? Because the truth of the matter is, two out of those three things are really kind of weird, and I'm pretty sure frankincense and myrrh would be about as useful to me as a 2XL shirt with flames on it. But that's what this new series is about. The gift. Over the course of the next four Sundays, we are going to talk about the Christmas story. We're going to take a look at it, the gifts of the wise men, and how they were perfect gifts suited for our Savior. And today we're going to start by talking about the gift of frankincense. So what was the purpose of the wise men giving Jesus frankincense? What practical purposes did it serve? What purpose spiritually did it serve? What symbolism does it hold as a gift for the infant Jesus? What can the gift of frankincense teach us about Jesus, about his character, about his divinity? And how could a gift that seems so foreign to us today actually connect to our personal relationship with Jesus and who he desires us to be in our lives and who he wants to be in our lives? 
First things first, you might actually be curious as to what exactly frankincense is. I know I was two, three weeks ago when I started preparing this message, but now I've done the research and I've typed the word into Google so many times, I will never for the rest of my life forget how to spell frankincense. Frankincense, sometimes referred to as olibanum, is an aromatic resin taken from the Boswellia tree. It typically grows in the dry, mountainous regions of India, Africa, and the Middle East. And unrefined, it looks a little bit like this. It has a woody, spicy smell. It can be inhaled. It can be absorbed through the skin. It can be seeped in tea, or it can be taken as a supplement. Due to the current rise in popularity of things like essential oils, frankincense has had a sort of comeback recently, and many believe it has antiseptic, astringent, carminative, diuretic, digestive, sedative, uterine, and vulnerary therapeutic properties. And feel free to comment below in the comment section of the live stream if you can explain to me what like 90% of those words mean. I have no clue. In Jesus' time, the oil extracted from the resin was used as a balm to treat sickness or wounds. Being that it was a medicine, it made for a very expensive gift, but it was also a very practical gift. But more importantly, frankincense was the oil that the Jewish priests would use during their sacrifices to burn the incense, and it would make the smoke rise of the sacrifice rise to heaven, representing the prayers of the people rising in faith to God. This points to frankincense symbolizing the priestly nature of Jesus. And there are places in scripture where Jesus is referred to as a priest. More specifically, he's referred to as the high priest. But what exactly does that mean? What does that entail? We hear and read in the Bible about the priests in the temple, but that can be a bit of a foreign concept to us in modern Christianity. And while it's not completely dissimilar to a pastor, a priest in the Bible was viewed as something pretty different than how we view our pastors or our leaders in the church today. I was born and raised Catholic, and the Catholic priests to me are probably the closest parallel in my experience to the Jewish priests of the Bible. In the Catholic tradition, priests are seen as closer to God. They are viewed as our representatives to God. And that representation goes higher up from the priests to the bishops to the cardinals all the way to the pope. He is the one that is closest to God than anybody else. And this is why the priest is the one to call upon God to come down and consecrate communion when they share communion in in the Catholic Church. And it is why the Catholic Church has the tradition of confession. You take your sins to the priest who will ask and intercede on your behalf and ask God for your forgiveness. And we need that forgiveness because the truth of the matter is, no matter which denomination or background we come from, God is perfect, pure, and holy, and we are not. We are broken people who struggle with sin and make mistakes, and we are always in need of God's forgiveness from our sins that set us apart from God. I know for me, I always found it a little awkward and uncomfortable going to confession when I was growing up, but I also know many people that I grew up with and friends from my past for which it is a very rich and meaningful practice. The priests in Jesus' time ultimately filled a similar role to this Catholic tradition and the Catholic priests. They had the means to make us right with God. The Jewish priests in scripture were essentially the representatives of the Jewish people to God. 
they had this one primary role, and it was broken up into these two main functions. First, the priest prayed prayers on behalf of the people of God. Secondly, they made sacrifices of the for, for the forgiveness of the sins by offering the bloodshed of an animal as atonement. So in the simplest terms, say I were the high priest, I would go to God on your behalf, I would make a sacrifice, and that would help make you right with God. And I understand, like, us talking about sacrifices this morning, that's a pretty foreign idea, and can maybe make us feel a little bit of uncomfortable, and it's a little bit weird, but it was also an important part of this Jewish tradition. And that Jewish tradition is the one that Jesus grew up in, and the one that Jesus was born into. It reveals more of the symbolism of the frankincense and this idea of Jesus as the high priest. So I think it's worthwhile to take a look at what this tradition, what these sacrifices, what this atonement would actually look like. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, most uh, traditionally known as Yom Kippur, if you've heard of that, the priest would make a sacrifice as a temporary payment for the sins of the Jewish people. The priest would sacrifice an innocent animal outside the temple, then go into the temple, into the tabernacle, behind the veil, into a place known as the Holy of Holies. This is an example of what that area in, modern, in a modern Jewish temple might look like. The Holy of Holies was the innermost place of the temple. It was hidden behind a curtain. It was thought that this is where the presence of God was. And it was the place that only the priest was allowed. No other person was allowed in this place. And even the priest, he was only allowed in there this one time a year. Once the priest was in there, the priest would light the frankincense and the smoke and the incense would rise towards heaven, representing the people's cry of mercy to God. He would then take the blood of the animal that had been killed. and He would sprinkle it on the part of the tabernacle known as the mercy seat. This would symbolize the death of an innocent one in place of a guilty one as payment for our sins. But that's not where the ceremony ends, and that's not the end of the atonement. The priest would then, and I know this sounds a little bit silly, but is absolutely true, the priest would then take a goat, confess the sins of the people to said goat, symbolically transferring the sins of the people to that goat. Then the goat would be driven out into the wilderness. This is actually where our term scapegoat comes from. The goat takes on the burden of the wrongdoing. So ultimately, the first animal that is sacrificed dies as the sacrifice, paying for the price of the people's sins. Then the scapegoat was run out of the community, symbolizing that the sins had been separated from the people of God. Let's be honest, this is all a little bit weird, a little bit foreign to us, maybe a little bit gross, and possibly a little bit extreme. But Pastor Craig Rochelle puts this all into perspective more eloquently than I ever could. Because God is just, completely just, he must punish sin. But God is not only just, he is also merciful. And, there's, and here's the beauty of what God does. The sacrifice satisfies God's justness and at the same time extends mercy. It is the price that is paid, but someone else pays the price for the forgiveness of sins. So God's holiness, his justice is satisfied. And yet he extends mercy to the people that he loved, loves so much.
And God set up this system so he could be just and merciful to the Jewish people. It's what the priests did to temporarily pay for the sins of the Jewish people. It was the old covenant between God and his people. But God was always working towards a new covenant. God sought to make it permanent with a baby born in a manger. He sent wise men to bestow the gift of frankincense on this child, symbolizing the healing the child would offer, symbolizing that his, symbolizing his place as the smoke and the incense rising up and carrying our prayers and cries of mercy to our creator, symbolizing the innocent animal sacrifice to pay for our sins, symbolizing the goat that carries our sins far, far away from us, and symbolizing Jesus' place as the high priest and for all time, once and for all, bridging the gap between the holy and the broken. Paul puts it this way, for God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. But our high priest offered him, offered himself to God as a sacrifice, single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Then he sat down in honor at God's right hand. God could have left the old covenant in place. He could have kept us at a distant, sep- distance, separate from him because of his holiness and our brokenness. And he would have had every right to. But that is not God's character. Ever since the fall of Adam and Eve, God had been wanting a relationship with his most precious creation, working to close the gap between us and him. And he wanted to do it in the most personal way possible. Every priest, whether from the Jewish tradition of old or like the Catholic priests today, they are imperfect just like you and me. I know growing up, I never felt like I could relate to the priests in my church. They were older. They lived a completely different type of life as a priest. And it felt like there was no way they could know what my life was like. Now, age has brought me a bit of perspective on this. When you grow up, you look at adults and you think they're older, they've lived life, and they have it all together. But then you grow up and you become an adult and you realize nobody has it all together. But still... To me, the priests were men of God, and I was just me. And I bet many of the Jewish people felt the same way about their priests. Here were these men who were the ones who were supposed to be closer to God, the only ones allowed in the inner sanctuary, only ones into the presence of God. And that sure doesn't feel relatable to everyone else. I mean, what could those men understand about my life? But that's the beauty of God's plan of redemption. He became man to live among us, to experience everything we experience, and to show us a better way to live. God could have chosen a different way, but he chose Jesus, and Jesus was not a distant savior. Jesus is not a distant savior. He lived, he breathed, he experienced the ups and downs and twists and turns of life, just like we do. And I need to do a better job of reminding myself of this, that when I feel something, when we feel something, Jesus did too. Have you ever lived without that much money or maybe even lived in poverty? Jesus did too. 
Have you ever been criticized, ridiculed, or bullied? Jesus was too. Have you ever been tempted over and over and over again when you were at your most vulnerable by the enemy? Jesus was too. Have you ever lost a loved one? Have you ever grieved? Jesus has too. Have you ever been accused of something you didn't do? Have you ever had a friend betray you? Jesus has too. Have you ever felt alone, abandoned, or deserted by God? With his last breaths of life hanging on the cross, Jesus did too. Our high priest, the one carrying our cries of mercy up to the Father in smoke and frankincense, lived as we lived and experienced all the things we experience, but with one caveat. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. Because he was without sin, perfect and pure, he was able to show us the way it is possible to live here, right here, right now. And because he was innocent and sinless, he was able to take on the crushing burden of all our sins and carry them out into the wilderness far, far away from us, just like the goat on Yom Kippur. And do you remember what happens as Jesus breathes his final breath on the cross? When Jesus cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The curtain, the veil that separated the Holy of Holies, the presence of God from the rest of the temple, from the rest of the people, it was torn in two. Suddenly, in the moment Jesus gave his life, we no longer needed a priest to act on our behalf. We no longer needed someone to intercede between us and God. Suddenly, the most holy place of all was open to all of us. It was the ultimate act of Jesus as high priest that his was the final sacrifice, that our forgiveness was no longer temporary, and that we can now go to God directly. When I read about this in the Bible and I read about the Jewish traditions, I'm continually struck at how they so clearly point to Jesus and the sacrifice he made for us. I think the symbolism in the frankincense is absolutely beautiful. And as a gift for the infant Jesus, it recognized his holiness and his role as the high priest. But now that we know some of the background, now we know some of the symbolism, and we get the meaning a little bit better, what do we realistically do with this information? What do we need to do to let Jesus be the high priest of our lives? First, we need to examine where in our lives we need to anoint Jesus as the high priest as our high priest. Giving Jesus authority over our lives is not an easy thing to do. Doing so seems pretty counterintuitive to our culture we live in and to just our human nature. We like to be in control and we struggle to admit our own faults and when we've been wrong. And while God knows every little detail about us, a true close relationship with him requires us to come to him and confess to him our brokenness. Where in our lives do we need his help? 
In my experience, there are parts of my life that I have no problem whatsoever relinquishing to Jesus. But there are others that I have yet to want to give over control. And to do so requires honest reflection, which is a hard thing to do, but a very necessary thing to do. And there are two little steps here that we can help make this happen. One thing we should do is ask ourselves where in our lives we need to release control and trust Jesus fully. What do you feel like you have to control? Are you focused on being in a relationship and finding yourself worth there? Do you try to control your relationships? Do you focus on and value how much money you make and how much is in your bank account? Maybe it's the opposite and you stress and fret over how little you have and maybe where your rent check or your next meal is going to come from. Maybe you're jumping from major to major or job to job to try to find the one that's going to fill you up and give you purpose. Maybe that's what you're trying to control. Whatever it is, take stock of these things that you're trying to control. For me, I find it helpful to actually write these things down as I'm reflecting on them. Make a written list. It helps make them more real to me, and it gives me something tangible to look at and to read when I take them to Jesus. But this is just the first step here. There are also parts of us that we may not see as an issue, but also parts of us that don't align with God. Next crucial step is in anointing Jesus as the high priest of our lives is asking Jesus to shine a light on the areas of our brokenness in our lives. This can and will be a different kind of hard than identifying where we need to give up control. Because oftentimes God shines light into areas of our lives that we aren't expecting. We talked about this idea a little bit over the summer when we took our summer road trip through Luke and how Jesus used the metaphor of light for helping us become more like him. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. But when it is unhealthy, your body is filled with darkness. Make sure that the light you think you have is not actually darkness. If you are filled with light with no dark corners, then your whole life will be radiant as though a floodlight were filling you with light. Letting the light of Jesus shine in you doesn't happen by accident. It takes intentionality. Pray and pray and pray and then pray some more. Ask Jesus to shine his light into the dark corners of your soul. And when he reveals things to you, lean into them. Don't lean away from what he's telling you. Add these things to that written list that you've already started. Discuss them with trusted friends, family, a mentor, or the leaders in your church. As you sort through it, feel the weight, feel the hurt, feel the pain, and feel the sorrow of it all. Because there will be those things. But know that it is good, and it is healthy, and it is God refining you to become closer and closer to the person he created you to be. Feel all those things and sort through them, but don't despair. Because the second thing we need to do is accept the forgiveness and sacrifice Jesus made. I want to revisit the passage from Hebrews 4 that I mentioned earlier. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. This is the last paragraph of chapter 4 in Hebrews, but is not the full paragraph. There is one more verse. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God, 
There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it the most. When we honestly take stock of our lives, the parts of us we try to control and the not so great part of ourselves that Jesus is revealing to us and working on in us, we are boldly coming to God's throne asking for his mercy and his help. And it is there that we find the ultimate gift he provides, grace and forgiveness through Jesus' death on the cross. If we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. This was God's ultimate way to make things right with him, to bridge the gap, to make us whole. No matter what we have done, Jesus covers it all. His blood was poured out on the mercy seat, and it is beautiful, and it is free, and it is right in front of us. It is there for all the things we have done in the past, and all the things we will do today, and all the things we will do tomorrow and beyond. That does not mean that we don't have to face some earthly consequences for our actions, or that we can just go and do whatever we want. But it means that when we do stumble, and we do succumb to our own brokenness, That Jesus looks beyond your sin and makes it not matter in the eyes of God. Because he has removed our sins from us as as far from us as the east is from the west. But just because Jesus has separated our sins from us doesn't mean that we have an easy time doing the same for ourselves. So the third thing we need to do is let the goat out into the wilderness. So back before we got married, when Eric and I were doing premarital counseling, I remember the minister, Pastor Tim, who married us, asking us all sorts of different questions about our relationship and background and all that fun stuff. A lot of typical stuff you go through in premarital counseling. And while he was asking all these questions, one that I was not expecting him to ask was, who is the grumpy one in the relationship? Well, briefly taken aback by the question, I remember feeling Erica's head kind of turn and look at me, and then me, quasi-reluctantly, admitting that it was me. I can be the grumpy one in the relationship. Now, most of the time, I'd venture, I guess, to say 90, 95% of the time, I'm pretty optimistic, I'm pretty positive, I'm generally a happy-go-lucky guy, but I do have my moments of grumpiness. And the thing about my grumpiness is, at the root of it all, is that it's never about anything anyone else has done. It's because I'm stewing in my own mistakes and sin. I'm frustrated with myself, and I'm holding on to the selfish decisions I've made, the times throughout the day where I've chosen myself over others, where I've chosen pettiness over love, where I've chosen the world's way instead of God's way, and, well, ends up making me grumpy. Even though I've accepted Jesus' forgiveness and the sacrifice he's made for me, I hold on to these sins and I replay them over and over and over in my head and I have a really hard time letting them go. And I guess that I'm probably not the only one who does this too. When I've reacted poorly to something my daughter has done, I need to make it right and I need to apologize to her. And when I've sinned against God in the same way, I need to go to him and confess and make things right with him. But then because of Jesus, who Jesus is and the sacrifice he's made, I am free to let it go. 
I can be free from the burden of holding on to those things. I am free to put those sins and shortcomings on a proverbial goat, just like the old Jewish priest did, and send them out far, far away from me to disappear into the wilderness. What sin and shame are you holding on to? What do you need to let go of? Where do you need to give our high priest Jesus to send out into the wilderness? What do you need to give to him? Because the truth of the matter is, Jesus has already sent the goat out into the wilderness, but we're the ones often holding it back and holding on. Let go of your goat and free yourself from the burdens that Jesus is ready to take from you. Thinking again about gifts, much like Mary and Joseph received gifts when Jesus was born, we received many gifts when our daughter was born. Honestly, it probably would have been pretty weird if someone had given us frankincense. You know, diapers, onesies, bibs, burp claws, those things were much more useful and much more practical. And practical is good. And for Jesus, frankincense did have some practical use. But the gifts, best gifts we received, much like the, the best gifts you can get at Christmas time, are the ones we didn't know we needed. They're from gifts from people who had already had kids and said, you don't know this product exists, but you will need this as a new parent. And those were awesome. More thought was put into those. And I don't know if Mary and Joseph fully understood the significance of the frankincense at the time when they received it. Maybe they just thought, hey, this will be great if little Jesus falls and skins a knee someday. But as he grew, as they watched him mature, maybe the significance became more clear to them. For God's gift to the world was one that he put more thought into than anything else. And the world may not always feel like it needs a savior. We might not always feel like we need a savior. But daily, God gives us the, gives the world a gift that it even didn't know it needed. Grace through his son, Jesus, who with his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. As we head towards Christmas, with all the shopping and preparing and gift giving and family commitments we may have, let's not lose sight of our holy gift our frankincense, our high priest who made us one again with our father in heaven. Please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you for the symbolism, the great meaning and significance behind the frankincense that the wise man gifted to your son, Jesus. I thank you that it ties in and represents so much of who Jesus is, his character, his holiness, and who he is for us. I thank you for his sacrifice, for that you wanted such a close relationship with us, that you gave your son, sacrificed your son, and took the burden of sin on him. So that we may come to you and have a relationship with you and be whole in you and that our mistakes and our problems and our bad choices don't matter in your eyes because of who your son is. Pray that as we go through uh, this time of reflection and this time of heading towards celebrating the gift that you gave us in your son, Jesus, that we may keep our eyes focused on you and that we may offer um, the parts of us that need to go back to you, that we need to give up control, 
that we can become more like you and more like the people that you created us to be because of your love, your relationship, and Jesus' sacrifice. We pray this all in your name. Amen. Thank you for joining the Damascus Road podcast. Our mission is to follow Jesus together by being with God, loving everyone, transforming people, developing leaders, growing new ministries, and changing the world. You can find out more about us online at DamascusRoadTucson.com.